Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to XYZ, the podcast about CNC, automation, robotics, business, and more. My name is Aaron Goff, owner of Goff Custom Knives, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Frank, from the Frank Brothers Guitar Company. How are you, mate? I'm good. I've missed you. Yeah, you too, buddy. I'll tell you what, the official theme of today's episode is... Beer time. (laughs) Hey, I'm having one, too. (laughs) What are you drinking? Uh, Stiegel Rattlers. Well, that's fun. Real man's drink. <laughs> uh, everyone should know that Aaron is shirtless and drinking <laughs> I am, a yeah. Rattler. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those episodes, people. Yeah. I was running late, so I ran home. And in Ontario at the moment, it's like 90% humidity. Mm-hmm. So by the time home, I was, by the time I got home, I was just drenched from head to foot. So I actually ran through the shower before jumping on with you. Oh, nice. Yeah. Not that everyone needed to know that. Sorry, I just put a weird visual in everyone's head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fully clothed, just saying. So well, know. that's that's thing. I'm wearing long sleeves and long pants. Yeah, you're a weird guy. <laughs> it's my beach attire. How, uh-huh. How's everything going? Man? It's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been. It feels like it's been so long. I don't know. We've, I don't even know what's been up. <laughs> but I've been running the hoss a lot. Nice. And I've been running the axes as well. So I like these two machines running. Uh, and I'm yeah, I'm like I've pitted them against each other. <laughs> I can guess which one has been winning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, How's it been going though? Like you've been like actually running production now by the sounds of it. I've been doing a lot of body stuff. Exciting. So we do the um, the arching uh, on the arcade tops the arching on the well we, you know we're, we're just doing a, we're, we're pretty much doing everything body related even cutting out the guitars we just dialed in our um purfling which is like the inner band that goes around the binding mm. uh and that's like a custom option we do like this tortoise shell purfling that's really cool uh Sweet. so that's just another thing that's that's 
that we've checked off the list. Uh, we have moved on to to starting uh, to run plastics. So pick guards mm. were, were um, are pretty well done. Um, I'm sure I've talked about this, but we um, we changed up the way we do it because the the pick guard itself has so many custom variables. Uh, you know what type of pickup is going in it. We just made a palette that runs blank, like pick guard shapes, and it does the right. the holes for the screws chamfers them um, and does the chamfer around the perimeter so it's the shape of the guard the chamfering in, is all done uh, right. the countersink's done and then we'll ha- we have a secondary palette that runs the pickup routes so cool. yeah it's going to be really efficient and then we're moving into pickup rings next those are just two bottlenecks for us and so it's it's happening we're, we're, we've got pallets um, we're, we're making parts it's been nice that is super exciting, buddy. Uh, how about you? You said well, you had a lot to talk about. Yeah, last week was a crazy week. So I was supposed to be on vacation, but it was probably the least relaxing week of my entire life. Oh my God. What yeah, happened? It was pretty nuts. So I was on vacation in this little town, um, and some friends of mine moved there um, about six or seven months ago. And so my girlfriend and I have been talking about moving outside of the city for quite a while. and this is where we'd like to move because we already have people there. You know, we have a little bit of a support system. Can you tell there. us the name of the town? Uh, it's called Bob Cajun. Oh, Bob Cajun. In Ontario. It's very cute. Everyone go listen to the song Bob Cajun by the Tragically Hip. It's uh, <laughs> pure Can- Canadiana. Yeah, it's a, it's a great little town, you know. Um, Super cool town. Yeah, and so I was walking through there and saw a house that would have been perfect for us. Um, one and a half acre lot. Um, a, a little house, you know, it's only like, um, 900 square feet upstairs and then a finished basement downstairs, you know, that's like same again. And it had, um, a newly built, really nice high quality shop Ooh. right next to the house. Yes. Not, it's not a super big shop. It's only 500 square feet, but it's right there. It already has electrical service. Like it's, it's good to go. You know? Three phase? No, unfortunately. So I went from never having seriously looked at real estate to putting in my first offer on a house no. uh, in two business days. Like I went from like no mortgage broker, no real estate agent, no nothing to like uh, offer on the house, you know, finances ready oh my in God. two business days. That's incredible. And it was one of the most stressful things I've ever done in my whole fucking life. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get the house. Ah, fuck. But... You know what? It may have worked out for the best. You never get the um, first one. Yeah, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, at, at the last minute, so I was like, you know, trying to work out where my blind spots were, you know, like what things haven't I checked, blah, blah, blah. You know, because the real estate agent was like, oh, you can totally run a business out of here. The guy was running a business. And I was like, oh, sweet. You know? And then I looked into the zoning bylaws and this place is zoned Hamlet Residential, which is not quite like urban and not quite rural. It's like, a, a relatively rare middle ground. Oh. And it turns out one of the um, bylaw rules for that property is actually that you cannot run a home industry oh. on the property. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. So I ended up like calling the planning office of like Trent Lakes and like talking to a super lovely guy, you know, being like, okay. And I, I was just a super straightforward with him. I was like, so sometimes I run this, you know, I sometimes I, ha- I have these big machines. Sometimes <laughs> I use them as a hobby. 
sometimes I might use them as a business. You know, if you guys found out I was using them for a business, what's the repercussions? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he was like, well, we'd have a biz- building inspector come and, you know, if it's unsafe, we'd issue a notice to comply. And if you refuse to comply, then there'd be fines, you know, and then he was like, you know, we really, op- we really operate on the like, be a good neighbor principle. Right. You know, so well, that's that. That is the crux of it. If it's no one's ever gonna, you're never gonna get in any trouble unless you got a neighbor that complains. Mm-hmm. And once you get into that situation, you're potentially kind of fucked. You're you're no matter, fucked like, whether you, the laws on your side or not. Probably. Yeah, I, I do remember hearing a story about a guitar maker who was building guitars out of his garage, and <laughs> the neighbor just complained, kept complaining, kept complaining saying that the noise was driving her nuts and he just was like running a, a router, which is kind of a noisy machine, mm-hmm. but it's a little like a hobby router, pretty much like a right. porter cable. And he like, couldn't even hear it himself when he was outside of the, the house. Right. So you just get some, some person who's a jerk. So, okay, yep. well this is huge. This, the process is the wheels are in motion. Yeah, so it's exciting. It's terrifying. It's a big leap for us because um, neither myself nor my girlfriend actually have our driver's licenses. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like putting in an offer on a rural property <laughs> yeah. without having a car or driver's license. <laughs> like <laughs> it was, it was a big, it was a big step, you know. And so, um, what are you going to do about that particular? Uh... Oh, we, we're going to get our licenses and stuff. Like, we just have never had a, a need to. You yeah. know, in downtown Toronto. Like, oh, I mean, really... yeah. I I didn't get my license until I was like twenty five for that same reason. I never needed right. it. Yeah. The subway everywhere, streetcar, bus. Yep. Yeah. So, and then you know that's led into a chain of things for me. Like, okay, so you know I use DHL for all my shipments. Will they pick up there? Mm-hmm. Like. How do I deal, like you said, like, you know, it doesn't have three-phase. Like, how do I deal with that with all my machines? Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it would have been, an, in some ways, I'm kind of glad that it didn't go through because it would have been a mad, mad scramble. Right. Um, you know, super expensive, super brutal kind of process to move a shop, obviously. And then, like, doing it into a situation that's not ideal is uh, even harder. So... We'll see. Like it, it's going to happen at some point, hopefully soon. Um, but yeah, it was just a crazy process. That rules. I'm so excited for you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah, one day it would be so nice to be able to just like roll out of bed, go into the shop, start a cycle, and then you know go have a shower. That is the dream, isn't it? Yeah, I think that'd be really nice. Um, cool. Well, uh. Have you looked at any other areas it's like besides Bobcajun? Is there like a rural, more less hamlety um, area <laughs> outside of Bobcajun? I'm sure there is. It turns out that zoning is actually kind of an aberration. Oh. Like the planning department said that in their whole municipality, they only have three small areas, like three neighborhoods that are that have that zoning. Oh, okay. So, yeah, not, so a, just, not something you're going to have to be stressed about going forward. Necessarily. No. And like literally the house next door to this place was zoned rural. <laughs> in and rural, you can do whatever the fuck you want. In, in a rural zoning in that municipality, you can have a 2,500 square foot um, accessory building devoted to a home industry. Oh, sick. Yeah. Okay. So I, I could have like, you know, totally separate service, like electrical service, you know. 
No, no. Whatever I want. Bigger than 2,500 square feet, though? Uh, not bigger than, is that what you said, sir? Yeah, no bigger than? Yeah. Can you go, can you go vertical? <laughs> can you do two stories of 2,500 square feet? Uh, I don't know, but like 20, for me, 2,500 square feet is still like huge. Oh yeah, that's, I mean, that's plenty of space. That's how big our shop is right now. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, just curious, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. You can always apply for, um, like, an amendment, mm-hmm. you know, to allow you to exceed exceed that. Um, it's just, that's a longer process, you know? Right. Uh, super cool. So, have you been, like, just scouring the internet now for properties? No, I think I'm ready for a vacation. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did you get a little time to relax? Um... A little bit. It wasn't really that relaxing. It was like the first few days where you're trying to wind down. Yeah. And then this happened, you know? So it was like, eh. So like I went to work uh, today and I was like incredibly unproductive. It was kind of frustrating because my brain is like toast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, still coming down from, because it was only last night that the, like the offer was in. We're like waiting to find out what had happened. The real estate agent forgot to call us and tell us that we'd missed. Come on. So we're like sitting there for like three hours and I call him up. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I didn't call you. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. So yeah. you're not using him anymore? <laughs> hmm So he was just yeah, a local probably. realtor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I have my own. Um, actually, my accountant is a real estate broker. Oh, okay. So I actually used him to put the offer in. Cool. Um, yeah, man. Yeah, crazy process. And like just just the process of getting a mortgage as a small business owner, oh, ter- um, terrible, terrifying. Honestly, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Good. would be, you know. Um, so it was kind of interesting. They had to do what's called a stated income mortgage, where basically they actually use my mortgage for my um, income from this year, even though I haven't filed it yet. And then I had to provide like, um, you know, like a bookkeeping records to prove that my you know the income that i was stating was like realistic oh okay so was that hard to to no it wasn't it wasn't too hard at all it's just bank statements really um but the nice thing about that is you know like i'm sure for a lot of people last year you know height of covid for a lot of people that was a shit year and it it was not a great year for me you know so but when i went and talked to the banks rather than the mortgage broker the banks were like oh you had a large discrepancy in your income between 2020 and 2019 so we had to take the lower of the two right we can't use an average. We can't look back further back. No, just like we're just going to use your lowest ever like stated income, you know? Mm-hmm. I was like, great. So, yeah, it's it's very, very interesting process. I was, yeah, I was going through a similar situation last year and last summer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was just, I don't know, I was just nervous about the whole thing. And it ended up working out, but. Oh, that's good. Um, you always just assume they're going to. The big the the man is gonna screw the little guy. <laughs> well, and that's what happens a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. So yeah, apart from that, like I I don't have a whole lot to report on my end since oh. the the last episode in terms of like machining stuff, right? Because I really haven't done that much since then, you know. Um, but yes, I'm still very excited about my hydraulic tool holders. Ah, oh, yeah. Okay, I got I I have the bug. And I want mm. one, and I can't. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to justify it. <laughs> um, so actually, I saw something the other day 
that uh, got me super excited for you, which is that Haas just released indexable ball nose cutters in their Haas tooling. Work. Okay. I'm not sure if you saw that. I didn't. I've been curious um, about those. Yeah, because they might be flute, good for your right? application. Yes. Which is good. Yep. This isn't bad for us. I mean, we've n- I've never used a straight flute ball nose. Um, but uh, straight flute tends to be all right for wood. Right. But very reasonably priced compared to the other like indexable ball nose mills that I've seen. So, And they have them in diameters up to like one and a half inches. Cool. Well, so um, I had a little visit from our oh. friendly neighborhood uh, Haas rep. Oh, yes. Fabrizio, mm-hmm. um, which is great. I, I like the guy. I was going to catch up and uh, show him the progress we've made on on the mm-hmm. machine. Uh, and he said, you know, Haas tooling is not available in Canada yet, but Circo Machinery, who he works for, is the, that's the HFO in Ontario, right. uh, can bring it in. So, Because I was talking to him about wanting a shell mill. Right. Um, and he said, check out what we've got. And if you want to, you want us to bring something in, uh, I can do that for you. So I probably could get my hands on an indexable ball nose, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting idea because, well, I don't know how well it would work for us. For the the half inch ball nose we use is a two flute, um, uh, helical. It's got a really slow helix, and right. um, we we use the a lot of the length of the flute for mm-hmm. so we do these we do these um pockets for electronics the electronics cavity and right. we mill it all out with uh, a square end mill rough it all out and then we have a radius bottom so we finish it with the ball nose and we actually cut the entire um wall which is mm. an inch and a half tall at least right with the edge of the of the length of the 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 ball nose, like, so we get this really smooth uh, wall finish, plus mm-hmm. plus a round over on the bottom, or sorry, a, a, a radius on the bottom. Right, and uh, from memory, I believe that the indexable ball noses do actually have like a short vertical section on the mm-hmm. the insert. So one thing you could do now that the you've got such a fast machine is just like, you know crank up the RPM and then do um, like a ramped contour around the outside. So you'd make multiple passes to form your flat wall. Right. But, you know, because you can really move, it'd be pretty quick. Yeah. But it's nice to take one full depth pass at the very yeah. end. Mm-hmm. It makes it just the edge finish is beautiful. And it's seamless with the ra- with the radius at the bottom. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but that being said, we use a ball nose for, um, I posted some videos. I should have posted them to the XYZ Instagram, but uh, I posted a video of uh, the heel contouring. So the heel is the Mm. portion where, I mean, you know this, but um, the heel is the portion where, you know, the neck, the shaft of the neck goes up into the heel and then the heel meets the body. And we have this contoured blended heel where it blends seamlessly into the body. And that's all done with a ball nose, and it's mostly using just the tip of, of it. Um, so it could be a good application for that. Mm-hmm. I like the idea yeah, I mean, of keeping tools sharp. Yes, sure. And uh, yeah, it's not a, having to replace a whole tool. It's a $140 tool. 
that ball nose that we're using. Right. Whereas the I, I if I remember correctly, the inserts for like the one in uh, one inch diameter Haas ball nose were like thirty five bucks US. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just one so, insert, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty pretty good value. I mean, and we would only need a half inch. Do they make it that small? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, they go down to like seven sixteenths. Oh, okay. Or five sixteenths or something like that. They go quite small. Right. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's a re- that's a really good thing or a good uh, option. I should look into that. <laughs> so you were saying before that you've got the hydraulic tool holder bug now. Have you bought any? No, but okay. So this is probably totally impractical because I, I honestly don't think we really need it for what hydraulic is built for. Right. Um. But um, I, we're we do a final cutout of the the guitar body, and it needs to, it needs to be perfect. And so, what I want to have is we rough out the body with a mm-hmm. you know half inch end mill, um, and then finish it with a, a different tool that's only meant for finishing. Yeah, and I was like, maybe that's a good application for the hydraulic. Because we, I don't, you know, the tool will probably still last a long time because we're not going to be cutting a lot with it. Mm-hmm. But what are the properties of, what, what's, what are the benefits of hydraulic other than fast tool changes? Like, you, if, you know, if you want to replace the end mill. Well, so, you know, as I was saying last, last episode, like people have always told me, oh, they have the best vibration damping. I think what they actually mean is it has like the best stiffness because right. the, the tool holder body is huge huge is it like okay. really yeah um you know so it's it's coupling that tool into the spindle really really tightly so that would you know, be like, probably a benefit for us for sure but honestly i think in your application particularly given that you're probably talking about like a relatively large square end mill right yes yeah, so it's a, it's a two and a half inch length of cut is the one i i kind of want mm. right now we're, we're using one with a two inch length of cut it's what diameter half inch and the one we so what we use now is a half inch single flute up cut mm. mm-hmm. with a two inch length of cut right and the one i'm looking at is three flute super slow helix like 22 degrees um mm-hmm. and uh two and a half inch length of cut which is like a little bit more than i need but sure. just i would say just run it in an end mill holder like you're gonna get like really good contact in an end mill holder. You don't really have the cutting forces. Yeah, to it just doesn't have the welding hydraulic. flat. Mm. Who are you getting the? Tool this from? one that I'm looking at is from uh, Harvey. Okay. Do do they not offer a service to put welding flats on? No, I mean, maybe you could ask for it, but it does. It's not a stock thing, I think, and it would probably cost a couple bucks more. Yeah, like literally a couple of bucks though. Yeah, but why not put it in a hydraulic then? If it's if I'm gonna be, you know I guess. Like you're talking about the difference between like an eighty dollar tool holder and like a two hundred and something dollar tool holder, but yeah, sure. <laughs> um yeah, I mean I could I I'll, what I'll probably end up doing, honestly, is just putting it in a call it right. ER call it and, and the holder. I'm just dreaming. Just dreaming. Um well one thing I would say, if you do decide to do it, so you can get um I'm not sure if Maritool has both yet, but you can get um, the hydraulic holders with a half-inch bore and a three-quarter-inch bore. Yes. And then you can get sleeves in either size to, you know, reducing sleeves, right? Yeah. 
So you could put that half inch tool in a half inch tool. Right. With no sleeve. Yeah. But I would definitely say don't do that. Yeah, I've heard um, I've heard that that's not as good an idea as just having the sleeve. Yeah, I mean, having a sleeve like potentially makes it run out a little bit more, but like uh, you know, like these things are granted to such tight tolerances, I wouldn't be worried about that really. Like the reason I would say to make sure you use a sleeve is because that way if you do somehow crash the tool, it's more, most likely it's going to trash the sleeve and leave your tool holder mm-hmm. untouched. You know, whereas if you like you know, fuck up the bore in that tool holder, then it's toast. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean that honestly, that's one of the in my mind now, that's probably one of the biggest advantages that they have over like an end mill holder. Because, you know, end mill holders are always the actual size of the tool and you know, you do tend to damage them. Like if you break a a tool off or something, you'll you'll scar off the inside of the end right. mill holder. Yeah. We, it, Mark and I were talking about this um, because we're we're just talking about tool life management mm-hmm. and how we never break tools. Like it's so rare. Yeah, sure. Other than maybe our smallest tool, which is twenty three thou, right? Which just disappears, doesn't even make any noise or anything. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. It just gets stuck in the part, <laughs> and then it carries on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, um, because of that. We sometimes we need to we need to be more um, we need to, to be more observant about the the like edge finish and stuff like that because you could just be running a dull tool forever. It's still just gonna move the wood away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forget where I was going with that. Um, but yeah, so an, an end mill holder probably wouldn't be problematic for us because we, you know, right. not gonna break tools right. really. So I actually had a problem. Uh, two weeks ago, I think it was where, so one of the things that I'm doing with the, with my G10, which is the composite material that I use for my handle scales, I'm actually processing. So I get like, um, sheets of that from my supplier that are eight and a half by 11 and a half inches. Um, and they're like three eighths of an inch thick. And I used to kind of cut those up on a a tile saw, Mm -hmm. um, using a diamond blade and, and water to keep the dust down. And that, that worked pretty well, but one of the problems that one of the things that I'm trying to do at the moment is when I'm cutting that down into like the rectangular blanks that I use for my handles, I'm keeping the size really, really accurate. Um, and especially in thickness so that I have this, I have this system where I can just put a liner in, um, to a jig, put some glue in there, put a handle scale on there and then glue it up. And overnight I have a, a sandwich, you know, a, a beautiful knife sandwich mm-hmm. ready for the morning. Um, but the problem is that, so I've been using, I've used a whole bunch of different tools trying to find one that would work. I, I've used four flute. So I, I'm using a one eighth inch end mill to kind of cut the slots that make the, um, you know, the big rectangle into smaller rectangles, right? Um, but G10 is like super hard on tools. It dulls them. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they start to get dull, the flutes pack up and it just snaps the tool off. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I went through... I went through like four or five tools in like a two day period. Yeah. Um, which, you know, sent me off on a, on a, a journey. Cause I was like, okay, I know that there are tools meant for G10 because they use it all the time in circuit boards. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that you guys get your fret slotting bits from precise bits.com. Right? I do. 
Right. So they have a whole line of end mills specifically designed for cutting G10. Oh, cool. Um, and they have like uh, two types. They have like, um, it's like a burr. It's not like a normal end mill. Yes. It's like a burr. Okay. So it has like seven flutes and then each flute is actually like serrated. Yeah, I've seen this. It, it, it looks like a grinding sort of tool for yeah. a Dremel. Yeah. Um, but those things are supposed to get, they actually rate their lifetime in linear inches mm-hmm. and it's like 1200 linear inches out of a tool, you know, okay. which is, that's a hell of a lot more than I was getting out of these little What's things. What's the diameter? Uh, one eighth. Okay. Yeah. Um, funnily enough though, it turns out that, um, McMaster actually stocked these tools. <laughs> okay. Um, in their like router bits section, you know, cause like, uh, precise bits seem great but like i'm gonna have to like place a separate order with them wait it's gonna be like weird shipping and all sorts of shit you you, you have a kink for mcmaster car everyone has a kink for mcmaster car. <laughs> Wait, come on um yeah so i'm in a i've got one of those in my in my cart right now they're not expensive though. what does it cost bucks. 11 bucks oh phew. yeah yeah so rather than being in there the reason i never found that is because it's in their router bits section not in their end end mill section. Oh, that's like uh, that's what woodworkers call end mills. Yeah. I actually have had to have, uh, I've had to for this podcast, change my vocabulary because <laughs> we'd always call them right. fucking router bits. Right. I don't know what it is. That's fair. Um, but yeah, they have them up to half inch diameter and cool. two and an eighth inch length of cut. Oh, sick. Um, uh, yeah, I got to look these up because I, uh, I've got something in my mind of what it looks like, but. Um, okay. So the thing about precise bits where you might want to reconsider is if, if you're mm-hmm. using, if you're going through a lot of them, I'm pretty sure they give you bulk discounts. Oh, okay. Uh, cause we buy like, we'll buy like 10, 23,000, uh, end mills that right. we used to, to fret slot and a few other different things. Yeah. We'll buy them like 10 at a time. They come in with a cute little case. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think you get a price break. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I have used precise bits in the past. I can't remember what for, but I know I bought the stuff from them. and they were great. So yeah, if anyone, you know, is looking for something like that, then hundred percent, they are an interesting supplier for those weird kind of like circuit board drills and, and yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm looking at them now. Yeah. This is yeah. cool, but cool router bit. Yeah, and so they said that like that that kind of burr design is very specific for um, cutting G10 because it it has like the serrations to allow it to cut the fibers, and then you know the gullets are specifically designed to move away the like soft fluffy chips while still having a really large core in the tool to resist the cutting forces. Right. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I'm what kind, kind of, of you don't care about edge finish either. Not really. No. It's it's a roughing operation. Yeah, you know, so made from sub micro grain tungsten carbide. Yeah, so we'll see. That that should be uh, fun. Should be interesting. Yeah, sec. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be curious to see how that goes. Yeah, it, it is a pretty stiff looking tool. Like the gullet's pretty yeah. small. Yeah, it almost looks asymmetrical. The tool well no like the if i'm looking they have a photo on precisebits.com of mm. the end of it but it kind of looks like it's spinning like the anyways <laughs> go look at it precisebits.com 
chip breaker yeah. router bits. Yeah, it's actually a very cool website. They've got some pretty unusual stuff on there that you wouldn't really see outside of like the circuit board industry. It's kind of a hilarious website too. So it's it's, like it's a bit weird, kind yeah. of old school. <laughs> the yeah, color scheme is that, funny. That's fine though. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, um, I love being just able to buy, click to buy, and that's what these guys do. Yes, hundred percent. So one, on that note, you know, one of the things that's kind of a bottleneck for me at the moment is that like. I have all these little processes that I'd really love to like take off of my VMCs because the VMCs should be hard milling. They should be hard milling 24 hours a day. You know, mm -hmm. they shouldn't be doing like G10 cutting or like Kydex cutting. Mm -hmm. Like they should be doing something that's like suited to their, their build, you know? Um, so I've been like fucking around more and more, you know, I, I want to build a CNC. It's been like my dream for the longest time to, design and build a CNC machine yeah. from the ground up. And one of the things that's really been stopping me is the spindle. Um, you know, cause you want to be a, have it, have tool changer. I want to have a tool changer. Yeah. hundred percent. Of course. And you know, so you can buy like BT 30 spindles off like AliExpress and they're actually pretty decent from what I've heard, but they come like you have like a pneumatic piston above the spindle to knock the tool out. And you know, that, that, pneumatic cylinder is like the same height as the spindle so you end up with a stack that's right. like you know, two feet tall <laughs> for this tiny little little spindle so i've been trying for the longest time to work out how to package like the spindle the motor and um the pneumatic actuation for the, the tool release you know in a compact package and i finally have worked out how to do it okay. which i'm super excited about is this something you can share yeah yeah it's gonna be open gonna... source yes it is um, so basically the spindle and the, um, so I'm actually going to be using a one horsepower brushless servo to drive the, the spindle. Will it be belt driven? Um, yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons that using the servo is really cool is because when I'm doing the orientation of the spindle, it means that I don't have to, so like on the Fidal, you have like a little piston that engages in kind of like a slot right. in the spindle to stop it from spinning and to like force the orientation. But that's kind of this like weird, noisy, clanky mechanism that's always got like uh, contact and impact on every tool change. It's kind of kind of nasty. Whereas with a servo, I can just have like a, an encoder on the spindle and then say, you know, rotate to this position. Done. And the servo will hold it in that orientation. Um, so the, the servo and the spindle are mounted parallel to each other with the servo in behind the spindle. It's a little bit shorter. Um, inside the kind of like head, uh, you know, casting, like the head um, assembly. And then on top of that, there'll be a cap that goes like a, a rectangular shaped cap that's the same kind of shape as the, the head of the machine. And on the underside of that, there'll be a lever. And on the end of the lever, one end, there'll be a pivot. The other end, there'll be a pneumatic actuator that has a relatively short stroke, only about one inch. And then in the middle, it has a, a place to push down on the drawbar of the spindle. Um, so you get force amplification. Like one of the biggest issues with um, this application is that you need like six or 700 pounds of force out of a pneumatic cylinder, which means that normally you need a really big diameter pneumatic cylinder. Um, but in this case, I can use that lever to amplify the force, shorten the stroke, amplify the force, and you know have enough force to do the tool release. Um, okay. All in about two and a half inches of height. 
it's like a Da Vinci's uh, <laughs> solution to this problem. You use some old school technology. Honestly, it'll be very, very simple. Like once you see it, you'll be like, oh yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to picture it, but I'm making a screwed up face trying to like imagine what yeah, yeah. you just said. Scrunching your face up. <laughs> uh, well, that's exciting. Yeah, and it's something I'm thinking more and more about. And honestly, like thinking about moving out to the country and having potentially somewhat limited access to power, again, it even makes it makes even more sense. You know, like this would be a CNC machine that could run off like a 120 outlet. Right. Yeah. That's you such know, a like cool standard thing. Out, household outlet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I'm not a Haas fanboy, although I sound like one, <laughs> but like their um, mini mills mm-hmm. and their tool room mills both run off of yep. uh, single, phase. single phase, which is super nice. Yeah. Um, they just actually came out with a new tool room mill. Uh, a T zero. <laughs> yes, I saw that actually. It's a very cool little machine. And it's like less than twenty. It's like twenty five thousand dollars, and with a tool changer, it's thirty yep. grand US. Yeah, yeah, and that's it, getting into like Tormac territory. That's yeah. I'm you know worried for yeah. Tormac because that's a pretty good deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the machine looks cool. I mean, this is yeah because you know the machine that you're talking about building is something that I would consider like i think i could have a a use for multiple uses for um and it would be depend depending on the price point i mean but like i'm imagining you're going for a lower price point yes Uh, yeah like i don't know like the bill of materials would probably still be like 10 grand mm -hmm. you know so i'm not sure what that would work out to be at like yeah retail price right like yeah double or something you know um but pretty impressive Haas putting out a like machine like that with tool changing for 30 grand still a lot of money it is but you know what like if you get a machine that needs three phase and you don't have three phase Mm -hmm. you know then like that's a a big expense of of its own like getting a phase converter is you know like a phase perfect phase converter is you know thousands of dollars right um like the i think the smallest one I looked at was for 10 horsepower and that was three grand us. Yeah. But okay. So if you move to the country, you're going to take mm-hmm. your Fidals. Mm-hmm. What choice do you have? So this is actually kind of funny. Um, Fidals from the factory, pretty much all Fidals, except for the very high torque machines could be configured to run on single phase. Come on. These yeah. Fidal is a funny company. I keep hearing every time you talk about them, it, it they seem like an open source, right? Like thing. So all of the um, servos so in the machine, yeah, hundred percent. All the servos in the machine, the input to the servo cage and the input to the um, control electronics is all one hundred and twenty volt single phase. So the only thing in the machine, like the the coolant pumps from the factory were single phase as well. And that's kind of unusual. A lot of like the bigger coolant pumps are all three phase mm-hmm. on, on other machines. But you don't even use that. No, I don't. But you know, if somebody else is, then I'm trying to be helpful. Oh, you know? I see. I see. Yeah. You well, um, I'm selfish. Yeah. Yeah. And the, really the only thing that's three phase in the machine is the spindle drive. 
And so I actually reached out to Dave DeCarson at Fidel Parts about this today because, you know, this is something I'm actively thinking about. And they have a, a diagram showing how the single phase transformer was wired into the machine. And it only shows single phase going to the spindle inverter. Um, and a lot of spindle inverters, like a lot of variable frequency drives, can actually just take single phase input and then output three phase. Because um, there, it doesn't matter whether they're taking single phase or three phase, they're converting all of that power to DC and then returning it back into three phase. So, why make it three phase? Because um, just because cheaper? it's more efficient power delivery. Yeah. Yeah. So my like, no one quote me on this yet. I'm gonna look into this a lot more because it's something I'm actively pursuing, but. My impression is that in most Fidals, you can actually take the transformer out entirely if your voltage matches up with what the electronics want and go straight from the disconnect through the surge protector and then into the uh, spindle drive, into the, the servo um, and the control PC. And then run it off single phase completely. Well, that would be a problem solver. Yeah. So and one other interesting thing is... so. My my two machines, one's a VMC-15, one's a VMC-10. The VMC-15 is rated at 15 horsepower, but it has a 10 horsepower sp uh, spindle motor in it. Right. It's rated for 10 and has 10? It's rated for 15 oh. and has 10. Okay. So the reason they do this, like, basically they, they like, you know, the motor can handle more power for a short period of time. Does that make sense? You know, if you're taking a cut that's like 30 seconds long and it's, a, you know, a 15 horsepower cut, the machine will do it. Like the, the spindle motor will just... You just can't do that all day. Exactly, right? Um, my other machine, which is a VMC-10, is electrically the same. But one of the changes that they made to that, so it doesn't have an enclosure. And I think one of the changes that they made to that was they actually only put a 5 horsepower motor in it. Hmm. Um, and I cannot tell the difference between those two machines in terms of performance at all. Really? Like I just, I don't do enough heavy cuts right. to notice. Right. Um, so I actually have brand new Glentech servo drive, uh, sorry, spindle drives in both of those machines. And those Glentech drives are actually configurable. So you just like literally turn a dial and it changes the complete configuration. Like you can tell it, Oh, it's a 10 horsepower, 10,000 RPM spindle drive, or it's a, you know, five horsepower, seven, 7,500 RPM spindle drive. And one thing that you can do with a three-phase motor is you can actually run it on a VFD that's smaller than the motor. Like, you'll lose power, obviously, um, but you can run, like, a 10-horsepower motor on a five-horsepower VFD. You just get five horsepower. Out of it. Oh, okay. It does right? it down. So, Yeah, exactly. So in my case, like, I don't need 10 horsepower. I, I never... Like, I've done all the calculations for how much power my cuts consume, and they're all less than one horsepower. Hmm. So what I'm going to try doing is actually just, like, changing the configuration on the Glentech drive on my bigger machine down to five horsepower, and then convert both of them to single phase. And the advantage of doing that is that it would mean that I can put them on smaller breakers. Right, so like you know, let's say I'm I end up in a shop that only has hundred amp, two forty volt single phase, rather than having to put those machines on sixty amp breakers each. Right, you know I could put them on a forty each. Okay, 
Yeah. Um, obviously, you can you can actually have like so you have like the main breaker in the panel, which will be a hundred amps, and then you have all of your other breakers, and the the sum of all of those other breakers will pretty much always be more than the main breaker because it's assumed that you're not pulling all at once full current from all at once. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like when you have your you know kettle and your toaster oven plugged into the same outlet. Exactly. The <laughs> bad times ensue. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if anyone's listening to this and thinking about doing the same thing, one thing you have to be really careful of is to never undersize your wiring. Like, your your breaker, you know, I am not an electrician. Don't take anything I say as professional advice. I'm an idiot. Don't listen <laughs> to me. Um, but, you know, the circuit breaker always has to be the weak point in the circuit. Um, now, that being said, <laughs> in my last shop, I asked the electrician to um, hook up a, a temporary circuit for my screw compressor, which takes 600 volt three phase. And he ran, he ran 15 amp wires to the machine and then put it on a 30 amp breaker. Sounds no, no good. That is very, very no bueno. <laughs> so if your electrician ever does something like that, immediately fire them. What um, happened? Did you notice? I did notice, and it was it was fine. I, I luckily I didn't really have to use it for more than like a couple of weeks because I was just getting that compressor up and running. Is it just what he had? Did he know he I, fucked up? I have no idea. But like, you know, putting undersized wiring on a circuit is such a bad and dangerous thing to do. Right. Um, but that wasn't the only bad and dangerous thing that he did to me in my shop. But one of the other funny things that he did was um, all of the. Uh, electrical work in my shop was done in conduit. So they're pulling individual wires through um, like metal conduit. And technically, I believe under code, you can use the conduit as your ground mm. rather than pulling a, a separate ground, mm -hmm. right? And that's what he did. But that means that the conduit has to be bonded to um, like your disconnect in such a way that that ground is like you know, electrically conductive, right? Right. It has to be done properly. He bonded it to the Fidal disconnects, which are painted steel. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'd been running this machine for like a year. And then when I was taking the machine out, I looked in the disconnect. I'd, I'd never thought to double check, you know, a licensed master electrician's work. And I looked in the disconnect and I'm like, oh, there's no separate grounding wire. Oh, he must be using the EMT conduit. And then I'm like, but the EMT conduit is <laughs> attached to the machine on on a painted surface. <laughs> like, there's no metal-to-metal -metal contact. Right. Um, yeah, it, it just it boggles my mind. So... I, I did check with a multimeter, and there was okay. continuity. So he must have, like, you know, talked it down hard enough that he broke the paint there somewhere. But I'm uh, very sure that's not up to code. Yeah, and did he check with a multimeter? So we had a we had the opposite thing when we mm. <laughs> when we had the Haas installed, there was confusion uh, with between the electrician and Haas about mm. the ground. So there was from the transformer mm -hmm. cables running, and it you know I, like I'm not that knowledgeable about this stuff at all, but it was grounded to. The electronics, the, the electrical cabinet of the Haas. Right. But the Haas directions, which this electrician was going by, said that it needed to be grounded to the base or something like that. 
So Buddy hmm. took that as gospel and drilled a hole in the cast casting. Right. And and he did um, uh, remove the paint in a really disgusting fashion. Like just like a right. sp- just like fucking ground away a bunch of paint from our beautiful new machine. And mm. ran a separate ground that wasn't from the transformer, which was already grounded to the chassis. He ran it directly to the, the building ground. So don't you just have a ground loop then? Sorry? You've got two grounds going we're to the machine. Grounded right? to the sh- to all, all you know, like we're hella grounded. <laughs> well the problem is if you have two grounds, I mean they're going back to the same place, but two grounds is not better usually allowed because ground can be at different potential. You know, so it's it's like you know, when I'm standing in my building, I'm standing on the ground, mm-hmm. but I'm three stories up. Mm-hmm. You are one story down and you are standing on the ground. You know, we are both grounded, but we're at different potentials. We have different amount of energy. Right. So if you have a ground loop, you can actually have current flowing through the ground because you have it grounded to, at two different potentials, if that, if that makes sense. So normally, you know, more than one ground is no bueno. Okay. Well, fuck. I don't know, man. Now you're stressing me out. <laughs> oh, no, no. It'll be fine because both of, in your case, both of them are going back to the panel. Both of them are going back right. to the power. Yeah. Yeah. So the times when this causes issues is... um. So, like, there have been famous cases of, you know, musicians being electrocuted on stage because they touch their lips to the mic. Right. And the mic is hooked up to an amplifier that's on a different circuit and has, like, a different ground than their guitar. You know, so they end up with a ground loop going from their guitar through their body to the microphone. Right. Um, right. And that's, that's unusual, but... Well, I've seen Tim get electrocuted. Happen once <laughs> was it was it funny <laughs> yeah um <laughs> uh, he was playing we just bought this amp it was like a from 1951 a fender mm. amp and uh what was the issue oh it just didn't have a ground like you know they didn't even have ground like the yeah, plug yeah. like a three-prong plug and I don't know what was up with the thing. Like it was, you know, it's an old ass amp. Some something was wrong. And the minute he he touched the strings and what else? He touched something else and right. just <laughs> closed a circuit or something. Just the energy just traveled through him, <laughs> and right. he got buzzed. Yeah. So the particularly with old school tube amps, especially single ended tube amps like Class A tube amps, mm-hmm. you're the zero point in your waveform, so like the crossing point in your waveform, is actually at an elevated voltage. Um, so you imagine like the voltage is zero volts to two hundred volts. the The place where the sine wave crosses zero is actually at one hundred volts, and then you have to use what's called a decoupling capacitor to get rid of that hundred volts of DC. So you end up with an AC output after the decoupling capacitor. But if something's gone wrong and the capacitor's like shorted or something, then you're just getting a hundred volts all the time on the output. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it didn't cook them or anything. It just gave them a little bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. My most recent surprise. I I haven't. I've gotten past the point, thankfully, where I electrocute myself <laughs> for the most part. But um, 
I was working on my iMac of all things, mm. an older one where you could actually like take the screen out and then swap the hard drives and stuff. And there is a, a particular step with iMacs where so you unplug them from the main power and then you hold down the power button for 10 seconds. And that actually activates like a, a discharge resistor oh. to discharge all of the capacitors in the power supply and in the um, backlight. So that you can work on it? Yeah, so you can work on it. And I thought I'd done that, but I must have forgotten to. And I like reached into the machine and just got like, I had one hand on the, the case of the machine. And I touched something and got like full whack through both arms, which is like the worst possible way to get electric. Um, and yeah, I felt real shaky for a, a while after that. Damn. Yeah, I saw an electrician. They were hooking up our 600 volt uh, um, jointer. Mm. 600 volt. That makes sense. Yeah. It yeah, was. Sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, he. I don't know. He fucked up, and took a pretty big jolt, and uh, <laughs> he was like, "I just thought, like, I saw him just like walk pacing back and forth in the the driveway, smoking a cigarette." And I asked the other electrician, "I was like, what's up? What's up with the guy? He looks stressed." And he just was like, "Yeah, he took a big, uh, big shock." Jesus! Don't even think he needed yeah, a, a lighter to light the cigarette. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, 600 volt mains is not something you want to fuck yeah, with. Yeah, the, the other guy said something about like, oh, he was like, he wasn't like touching something else. So like he didn't take the full current or mm. something like that. So because otherwise. He got lucky. Yeah. Otherwise he would have had a. Otherwise it could have stopped ex- his heart. electrician <laughs> in your shop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for anyone listening, like to do electrical work, even, you know, as I said, even on consumer goods, sometimes like you you really do have to be careful. And, you know, I, I sound flippant about it in this case because it's funny, but like I am always genuinely cautious uh, when doing any kind of electrical work. And thankfully that has resulted in no major shocks for me. Um, yeah. It's so, it's so easy to, to fuck it up and give yourself a good whack, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, every electrician's, had one. I I worked for a contractor mm. when like I was twenty one or something like that, and uh, he had these uh, wire cutters that were just like metal. They didn't have like an insulated mm-hmm. handle or anything like that. And they just had this huge wire shaped um, <laughs> hole, <laughs> hole in, the in the middle of of the where yeah. the, the wire cutters cut. And I asked him about it, and he's just. He said it was the the the, elect, the the electrical current just burned a hole in mm-hmm. uh, the wire cutters and also cooked him. He's <laughs> yeah. changing a light fixture or something like that. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be extremely careful. Yeah. Uh, so yes, if you don't know what you're doing, don't do electrical work. And if you do know what you're doing, still be careful. Yeah, I always hire an electrician. I think there's a law here that you can't you can do electrical work if you own the property. But otherwise, no. Yeah, Yeah, and that's actually one thing that I'm really looking forward to is that once I own my own shop, I'll be able to pull permits, do electrical work, have it inspected. Like, do it myself, Mm -hmm. but do it all above board. Yeah. Um, You know, because electricians are expensive. Super expensive. And, I mean, this is the funny thing. Every time we bring the electricians in to do something, they're always like, huh, never done this before. (laughs) 
like install <laughs> like, a fan for oh, in our right. spray booth or uh right. shit like that and it's like i mean it's all like i guess when you, you know you boil it down to the basic elements of what electric electrical work is it's uh maybe not straightforward but it's kind of all the same like there's there's some basic rules yeah yeah the thing that bothers me is just you know so in the last shop that electrician like I specifically saw itemized items on the invoices that he gave mm-hmm. me for permits and inspection. And in hindsight, I don't think that either of those things were done, you know, because so I I've had other electricians tell me that some electricians are certified to self-inspect. Oh, okay. Uh, which sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. uh, erodes. Mock your own test, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not very scientific. <laughs> No, but, you know, if that was the case, then, you know, I don't think that that grounding issue on my Fidal would have really passed. Uh, and I definitely don't think that the circuit for my screw compressor would have passed muster. Mm-hmm. You know? It doesn't sound like it. No. So, yeah, I'm just, you know, that's one of the things. Like, you pay for a professional, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting someone who's acting professional. No. You know? Yeah. So every time we bring these guys, the electricians in, it's always there's always some confusion over something, and they ask me questions, and I'm like, I'm not a fucking electrician. Why was? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, are you ready to talk about space now? Hit me. I've I've gone all of this time. I've been so patient, just waiting to talk about space. Well, I, and I haven't looked. At, I don't. I don't know anything about what's ha- been happening. So. Okay. So. We might actually have to like take this into next week because I think we're already like running close to time. But um, the last like two weeks have been insane for space stuff. Insane. What's happening? Um, who, who's who are the movers and shakers? Well, SpaceX. Of course, they're the biggest. <laughs> Your ones. favorite. The um, the wooden spoon prize. So in Australia, we have this thing called the wooden spoon prize, which, looking back on it, it's quite mean spirited. You get the wooden spoon when you're lost. <laughs> right. Did you get? Did you get those? Normally here in Canada, they give kids participation ribbons. Oh no! When I was in in high school, you got the wooden spoon. <laughs> it's like the opposite. Poor of little Aaron. And I personally got several wooden spoons, <laughs> um, mainly for th- things that involved exercise. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. So Boeing. You know, we all know Boeing. They're a huge company. They are one of two companies that won the commercial crew program contracts to help NASA deliver goods and astronauts to the International Space Station. Okay. Uh, So it's Boeing and SpaceX, the two companies. SpaceX has made tons of deliveries to the International Space Station. No problems. They've had two crewed missions. No problems. Um Boeing, on the other hand, have not had such good luck, unfortunately. So they have a a program called Starliner, which was supposed to go to the International Space Station to take cargo. I don't think it's actually made a cargo mission yet. I'm just going to double check that as we talk. But I don't think it's even made a cargo mission, which is hilarious. What's up with Um, these uh, big, you know, aerospace companies? Too big to fail, I think. Right. right? You know? So the, the really telling thing, though, in my mind, and honestly, if I was an astronaut, I would not I would not be uh, going trying to get my frequent flyer card with Boeing at this point. Um, 
they were supposed to launch their first mission to the ISS the other day. And they literally had the, the rocket on the, the launch stand. And then there was a malfunction on the International Space, on the International Space Station. Um, the latest Russian module that was attached called Nauka um, accidentally fired its reaction control thrusters and started like rotating the whole space station like out of control. Uh, cool, but it's terrifying. Yeah, bad times. Um, so they were able to fix that, but because of that issue, they scrubbed, like they delayed the Starliner launch, right? So this is just bad luck for Boeing. Yeah, yeah. At this point, to this part of the story, it's bad luck for Boeing. Um, but then they were looking at, you know, so they've already gone, they had literally gone through all of the pre-flight checks. Like they had said everything was ready to go, right? And then after the delay, they went through the checks again and found that 18 valves in the flight abort system were not in the positions that the valves reporting were reporting to the flight computer. And how, how bad is that? How dare, I mean, anything malfunctioning uh, sounds bad, but... Yeah, so the flight abort system is like a big rocket <laughs> that goes off when it's instructed to to carry the astronauts to safety with like a crazy 10G burn, like to get them away from the rest oh, of the Oh, cool. So, but if that rocket fires at the wrong time, Uh-oh. like for instance, when you're docking with the International Space you're Station, fucked. then it's just going to drive the whole capsule at like a 10G burn into the ISS. Um, and, you know, potentially kill everyone on board or something like that, right? So it's kind of mind-boggling they found this deep of a problem after the system was already supposed to have been launched. Right. It's it's surprising that, A, we know about that and then bury it somehow. Um, right. But B, that they even, like, went through these check processes again. Like... You have to do. I mean, it sounds like it was additional checks. That's what I'm saying. Like, why did they do that? Because they didn't find it. I don't know. Because they didn't find it the first time around. You know, maybe there was a malfunction. Maybe they froze in position or, you know, after being actuated. Right. Yeah. yeah. Some little thing made them um, want to double check it, triple check it. But at this point, the Starliner launch is delayed indefinitely. Hmm. Um, Which is kind of brutal. Like, um, so the SpaceX Crew Dragon um, costs, I think it's $55 million per astronaut to get people to the International Space Station. 50, sorry, how much? $55 million. Wow. The Starliner costs $90 million. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like NASA are paying for that and they haven't delivered. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of nuts. Damn. Um, yeah, so I'm just looking at the. Yeah, so there's only been two missions that have actually happened so far, and they're both listed as part, like two flights, and they're both listed as partial failures. Ouch! That's gonna sting the uh, ego mm. of Boeing. Seriously, so it's kind of crazy. And then on the other hand, we have SpaceX, who are I sound like a total fanboy here. You but are. I am a fan, but. I'm not, like, unconditionally a fan. You know, like, if they do something, like, dumb. Like, so, for instance, um, Starlink. The Starlink satellites have been interfering with astronomical observations because they are they reflect too much sunlight. Oh. Um, you know, That's kind of lame, yeah. 
yeah, and they're working to correct it, but like that's not great. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, but he, you know, anymore. they don't seem like the type of company that would want to do that and be like, well, fuck you, we're a, you know. I don't think so, but I think they also have different priorities to some extent, you know. So we'll we'll see. I want them to fix that, obviously. But SpaceX have just been crushing it. Mm-hmm. So they're um down in Boca Chica, Texas, is where they're assembling Starship, their new um launch system. And uh last week for the first time they fully stacked, like they fully assembled um this system. Mm-hmm. So it's the Starship on top of the super heavy booster. And that whole stack stands like a hundred and fifty meters tall or something. God damn. Like it's nine meters in diameter. It's the largest rocket system humanity has ever made. It's insane. They have two out of three of the world's largest cranes on site doing construction of the rockets and of the launch launch tower and stuff. Um, so, like, you see photos of this thing from a distance, and you're like, oh, that, yeah, that's big. But then... Uh, there's this YouTube channel called Everyday Astronaut, which mm-hmm. is super, super cool. Very fun to watch. And the guy that runs that channel, Tim Dodd, uh, apparently, like, you know, can call up Elon. Because <laughs> he actually ended up getting a personal tour through all of the construction facilities oh, man, with I want to see Elon that. as the tour guide. It's a, it's a really cool video. It's two and a half hours long. Do you long, see, like, the manufacturing facility? Every single part of, of not of the um, engines. Okay. But all of the manufacturing for the... So what kind of machinery are we talking rockets? about? It's all like welding and rolling equipment. Boring. But it's it's on this like ridiculous scale. But do you see you like know, mills and... Oh, uh, uh, no. Because there, there aren't any on that site. True. Like, at least as far as I saw. You know? I want to see like where um, they're making like the, the critical precise tolerance stuff. I would like to see inside the rocket engine, uh, inside the rocket engine factory. Yeah, yes. that's. But I mean, they've they can't be making everything too. Like they've got to be contracting a lot of stuff out to aerospace machine uh, shops. I don't think that that's the case. Really? Like, yeah. So one where of is that? Things... I want to see that tour. Where are the mills? <laughs> where are the lathes? You know, like one of the things that that um, SpaceX and Tesla both do is vertical integration. Mm-hmm. You know, like they try to keep as much stuff in-house as possible in order to have control over every little bit. And actually, one of the anecdotes that Elon was talking about during the the um, tour was actually a really good example of why that's helpful. So he said that they he was like sleeping in the factory at Tesla during the ramp up of Model 3 production. And there was one particular manufacturing cell that was like the bottleneck for the whole factory. And it was this automated system with like three robot arms for placing a fiberglass mat on top of the battery pack. So, you know, it had to be like this soft mat, like kind of wrangled into the battery pack and then glued down and so on. And so he said he spent like three or four days, like, you know, making the robots a bit faster and like, you know, trying to squeak every second out of this process. And then he was like, hang on a second. Like, what is this even for? You know, so he asked the battery pack team, like, and they're like, oh, it's for um, noise and vibration. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he went to the noise and vibration team. And he's like, so what's this mat for? And they were like, oh, no, it's not for noise and vibration. It's for fire safety. Like, go talk to the battery pack. (laughs) 
And then the end end result of this was they removed the mat <laughs> and deleted that entire manufacturing cell and just like got rid of the bottleneck sack. <laughs> like it just wasn't needed at all. That's funny. Right? And I think if you had like you know an, a company outside, uh, you know, like an outside contractor making your battery packs, like that optimization probably would have never happened. It seems like the kind yeah, of like, thing where it's like you know Ford would be like, well, I mean, we've got all these, you know, mats. We bought a thousand mats. <laughs> Gotta, Gotta use them. <laughs> Ten thousand mats. Yeah. But yeah, so like honestly, like just from a um like a, a thinking standpoint, like thinking about manufacturing, I thought that the tour was really cool. Cool. I'm gonna watch it. That's um it. yeah, and the last so it's actually in three parts. The first two parts are like an hour long each, which is kind of nuts. The third part is like twenty five minutes or something. And um Tim, like the, the, you know, the guy that runs the YouTube channel actually didn't get to talk to Elon much during that 25 minutes because Elon gets like sidetracked by the, one of the construction site managers at Starbase, but he just lets Tim keep recording. Oh, so cool. we get to hear like 25 minutes of like troubleshooting project management. Yeah. yeah. Of, of this huge um, program, hmm. you know? And so they're running like, um, you know, multiple, they're like literally doing 24 hours a day construction mm -hmm. down there. And apparently the way that they're t telling everybody is like the way that they're communicating the pace that they want is they're telling everybody, imagine an asteroid is hitting the earth in eight days. That's the schedule we're working on. Crazy. Maybe there is one. Fuck. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I think that was more than eight days ago. But, yeah. Okay. Maybe it's going to be like, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, dude. Like, it was very, very cool video. I mean, I've got, like, a whole page of notes from from the video from a bunch <laughs> Anything of that applies to what you do or what we do? Um, one, actually, one interesting thing was uh, Elon said that he has five steps. He walked through the five steps that he applies to all manufacturing processes. So, you know, it, it is kind of interesting because, like, when we think about, like, engineering, it's always, like, make the process better. You know, that's, that's the step, you know, you have to make everything better. His first step is make your requirements less dumb. Yes. I, this is a lesson you taught me a while ago. If you have unrealistic tolerances, then it'll be impossible to make something. And right. you can, you can scale that back. You could say like, you know, if your tolerances are not, maybe not unrealistic, but are hard to hold, right. then you know, it's going to be harder to manufacture. So it's like, can you build into your your process mm -hmm. lower tolerances without the 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 product depreciating? Yeah, without it getting worse. Yeah, totally. So yeah, like you know, and he basically one of the things he's saying about SpaceX is that every single person, like every single engineer, is a project owner. Like. If somebody comes to the, like the propulsion guys and says like, I don't think this part is needed, it's like not acceptable for that to be laughed off right. or waved away. You know, like every single person can like help optimize other parts of the system. That's company you know culture. I mean? or, like, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. But the old school companies like, you know, Boeing, for instance, I think they have very much have departments. This department is responsible for this thing. Sure, and there's a lot of ego, and you know, you're not gonna um, tell me my part's not necessary. 
Right. I, you know, I don't know about that part, but I think that, you know, traditional large scale engineering is very much about like components and subcomponents. You know, like I'll assign you to work on this component and then you'll just give me back a box that complies to my specifications. Oh, I see. Okay. So you, it's just not as um, uh, collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and there might be a lot of opportunity. So, like, you know, your box needs to be strong for whatever reason because of, you know, the specs of your thing that you're making, you know, could we maybe make that part of the structure to, you know, to use that box's strength to provide structural reinforcement mm -hmm. rather than having structural reinforcement and your box, you know, cause like when you're launching a, a spaceship, you know, like every single pound that you add to the spaceship is like one pound of stuff you can't take to space. So yeah, it's just super interesting the way that they have that very like collaborative culture, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like Elon's five steps. Number one was make your requirements less dumb. Number two is try to remove the part of process. Number three is simplify or optimize the part of process. Number four is accelerate cycle time. And then number five is automate. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that I do some stuff out of order according to those rules. So I'm trying to think a bit more about removing the part or process is a really big one. Like, you, you know, mm -hmm. from a software, I've written a lot of software, right? And from a software perspective, the best code is no code. <laughs> yeah, true. Nothing to go wrong with it. No maintenance. No, you know, like if you can get rid of it, get rid of it. Yes, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it. It's hard. You almost... Like as a manu as somebody manufacturing a product, it's almost offensive to try to remove something. Yeah, you have like an investment hmm. in you know you've made this thing beautiful. You've spent time optimizing it, whatever. Then someone comes along to you and is like, "We don't even need that." Thing. Right. Well, we've been thinking about this with you know as we start transferring stuff over to the Haas. It's like, mm -hmm. can we? Mark and I were talking about this today. Like this back purfling. It's like the same thing I was talking about at the very beginning. It's just on the back. It's like we have to fit this purfling into this really tight corner. It's like, can we just make that not such a tight corner? Why not? I mean, it's our it's yeah, our yeah. product. Like, let's just make that a radius. It'll go in easier. It'll mm -hmm. it'll affect the aesthetic of it, but not in a negative way. I mean, from yeah. our thinking, and it'll make the manufacturing easier. Hundred percent. So, yeah, no, it's. I mean. Constant improvement, but with that principle, yep. I think is a is a winning combo. Yeah. So one really interesting example of this on Starship in SpaceX is so on the the uh, Falcon rockets, um, they they have what's called a reaction control system, which is basically like little rockets pointing in lots of different directions that allow them to change the orientation of the rocket when it's in space, right? Because you don't have any air to yeah. like push around or something, so you have to use rockets. Cool. Um, so, of course, Starship needs a reaction control system too. But um, Falcon uses what's called a cold gas thruster system. So it's literally like com like super compressed air. I'm pretty sure they use nitrogen. Um, you know, so they have a really high-pressure nitrogen tank, and they just like open and close a little solenoid and squirt some gas out into space, right? Um, but they need more power than that for Starship. So they went through the whole process of developing what's called a hot gas thruster system. So it actually uses like liquid methane, liquid oxygen 
you know, it's it's a full-on miniature rocket engine. Cool. Um, and they had these, they were demonstrating them and everything. And then they realized that, so part of the way a rocket maintains its structural integrity is actually by keeping the tanks pressurized. Um, like if you have an empty soda can, you, you stand right, on it, yeah. it just squishes, right? But when it's full, it's full of pressure and it's super, super strong. So they actually have to like generate pressure by um, basically like vaporizing fuel, like they'll be venting a lot of the time because you have, um, you know, liquid oxygen in there, super, super cold, but it's always heating up. It's always warming up a little bit and turning into large quantities of gas. So most rockets actually have to vent the fuel tanks, you know, every couple of minutes or whatever, just to keep the pressure reasonable. And they were like, why don't we just use that gas as our reaction control thrusters? So, so they deleted the, they, they'd built these like rocket engines specifically for this. Like they'd gone through a whole development process and they were like, yeah, let's just get rid of that. Okay. Crazy. So do they, ha- they have to gas these things off though? Cause normally, you know, like yeah. maybe they wouldn't, didn't want to move the rocket this way or that way or this, you know, but they have to be, it has to be, vented. it has to be vented. So they're using that as propulsion, but yep. when they don't need propulsion are they still having to vent it and get propulsion they are but you can imagine if you have thrusters pointing in every direction right you can counter if you want to do a neutral burn you just burn in opposite directions at the same time Mm -hmm. like you just vent gas in the two opposite directions clever bastards yeah so and and literally during the the um the like walk around the interview tim uh the everyday astronaut, he asks, oh, are you going to do that same thing with Starship? And Elon just gets this look on his face. He's like, we haven't talked about that. I guess we should do that. <laughs> we'll probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. You know? So, yeah, it's super interesting. If, if you are at all interested in space, it is a little jargon heavy, a little technical, because, you know, they're both space nerds, and they're just kind of having a conversation, not mm-hmm. really dumbing it down. But it's... I think one of the things that got to me most is the scale of the operations. Mm. Like when you see a photo from far away, you're like, oh, that's a really big crane. You know, it looks like a big crane. But then they're standing next to the crane and the top of their head doesn't even come up to the top of the tank treads on the crane. Right. Yeah, the perspective is important. Yeah, like these things are huge. Um, so, yeah, it was just super, super cool to uh, to see that. All right. Well, we've all got homework to watch it for next week. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Aaron, we're coming up onto an hour and 20 minutes. We're well over budget. All right, we're done then. We're going to have to pick this up next next week. No worries at all. That's that's what I said when I started this uh, rambling. (laughs) You did warn everyone. Yeah. I don't know if... Is anybody still listening? Hello? Hello? I actually had um, someone message the other day and say that uh, he messaged me a screenshot of... Uh, the everyday astronaut tour and said, this is all your fault. Space talk is my favorite part of the show. <laughs> Not my ran- so, random you. nonsense. Come on. No. Uh, that's fair. All right, buddy. Well, we should wrap it up by the sounds. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll look forward to chatting with you next week. Good to, of good course, to be back. Man. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, hope everyone has a great week and we will speak to you again next Thanks week. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.